As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Well, it's been a frankly enormous week in the history of Arsenal Football Club and we play Villarreal on Thursday evening in the first leg of the Europa League semi-final. So it could get more momentous. Who better to pick over the bones of it all than the Arsenal writers for The Athletic, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Hello. Hello, Ian. Hello. Hello. Just thinking, it, it, you know, it could get more momentous. It could get less momentous. Well, that's a bit of a... <laughs> it's a bit of a worrying intro, that. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I think it'll be quite it's momentous. It's inevitably going to get more momentous. If it goes badly, it could be momentous for the wrong reasons. Yeah, mm, I think we're I overthinking it, to be honest, guys. <laughs> but, you know, it's OK. It's OK. You're right. It's going to be a big week, whichever. Uh, I know, by the way, you were both down at the protest on Friday. Uh, Amy, I saw you. It was lovely to see you. James, I know you were there. Uh, it was a hell of a lot more entertaining than the game that followed. We'll talk mainly about the protests and the wider implications of the European Super League and the ownership of Stan Kroenke. And then we'll get on to Thursday's game. Before we do that, though, along with Alan Shearer, Thierry Henry were the first inductees into the Premier League Hall of Fame. Uh, Arsene Wenger picked out his goal against Real Madrid as being his best it's a big call, but it's certainly up there. What's your favourite Thierry, uh, Thierry Henry goal or moment? Um, I mean, I say this to you every week, Amy, but could you limit yourself to five or six, perhaps? I mean, it's hard for all of us, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think I'll I think I'll take a couple. I might sneak one more in there. Um, one Arsenal, one on Arsenal. Uh, the Arsenal one is a moment that I was talking to uh, Tayo about during the week. And as some of you will have noticed, it was the uh, anniversary the other day of winning the league at White Hart Lane. Uh, I think that coincided with Tottenham losing a cup final um, in the last few days. And um, <laughs> Well done for bringing that up, though. Nice pleasure. Uh, but I, I, I'm slightly obsessed by that first goal of the, the game at White Hart Lane in 2004, where the title was clinched. And... Um, it was three minutes into the game. Obviously, there was a lot of uh, emotion and build-up uh, ahead of this one and energy. And uh, it was one of those goals that's almost 
in your mind's eye a sort of the most typical Arsenal goal of that era. It was so high speed, it was ridiculous. It started with the Tottenham corner. The ball was cleared by Gilberto Silva and then it went out to Thierry Henry and he picked it up uh, not far outside his own box and he started to go. And, you know, the words va-va-voom were invented for him and, and, and this was it. But when you actually watch it back, the way that he runs with the ball and he is, he is properly sprinting like a 100-metre runner. Uh, he's got this motion where his arms are, are going round like, uh, like a train's pistons or whatever. I mean, just incredible in its uh, combination of sort of power and elegance. Um, it looks beautiful. And you don't see many people running quite like that on a football pitch because they're sort of so busy doing other things like either trying to control the ball or look around. But he's just in that peak high sprint mode and it's mind-bogglingly brilliant. And then releases a perfect ball, which then becomes a perfect ball from Dennis, which then becomes a perfect ball from Vieira. And the whole thing takes a blink of an eye, you know, a few seconds, one end to the other. And it was just a perfect Arsenal goal of its age with Thierry at the heart of it. So I'm going to go for that. I just, I just loved it. Do you know, can I just add at this point, because the one I picked um, with a little nod to West Ham away, which, which is a shot that I think was the hardest I've ever seen a ball hit. Absolutely amazing goal, I think. Um, but the one I picked was actually Bayer Leverkusen. I've talked about this on the show before. Perez in the corner to Dennis Bergkamp, to Vieira, back to Bergkamp, through to Sylvain Wiltord, steaming down the right wing, and Henri coming along on the left, and Wiltord just squared it to him, and he scored. And I swear to you, the goal happened as quickly as I've just described it. I think it was about four seconds from one end to the other. And it took my breath away. The speed that Arsenal used to play, especially when you look at how slow <laughs> our team can play at this present moment. Uh, that is my moment, really. Um, I should say, James, before I come to you, we've got various ones. Um, Teo put out a little shout on Twitter. Um, Jonathan Hausman said, we actually lost to Wigan in the Carling Cup semi, but he scored a header from a Kerry Gilbert corner, uh, who never made it but was a youngster coming through and instead of celebrating his goal, just brought Gilbert towards the North Bank for the fans to admire him. Liam Arnold went for a moment when he tapped the kid on the shoulder and looked away in the tunnel. Classic Thierry. When was this, Do it, uh, James? <laughs> I don't remember when it was, but I do remember it happening. It was in front of the Sky cameras and he yeah, just gives the mascot a little tap on the shoulder and looks away. Um, very <laughs> mischievous. Yeah, that's a good, good, that's a good one. Steve Pye at 1980 Sports Blog. I love that free kick against Wigan with his little nod to Graham Pohl. Just so uh, Thierry. And Gaz uh, at Aerial Threat. A pre-season goal against Vice FC, I'm figuring, in Austria. <laughs> Ball didn't touch the ground, and in three taps, he lobbed the keeper. Um, yeah. That is an amazing goal, actually, that one. Yeah, yeah no, I, remember, I had a look at that. It's fantastic. What have you got, James? Well, I, I mean, sort of along the lines of that Vice goal, Thierry was one of those players who he made you get off your seat because he did things that you'd never seen before. You know, I think of that backheel goal he scored against Charlton, for example. It was just so audacious to produce something like that in a Premier League game. And one particular moment that might seem of very little consequence, but that really sticks in my memory, was in the final season at Highbury, Arsenal beat Middlesbrough 7-0. Thierry Henry scored a hat-trick that day. But there was a moment where he was about 30 yards from goal and he sort of shaped to shoot, 
And instead, he played a pass off his left foot. It was kind yes. of, it was the first no-look pass I ever saw in the flesh. They're relatively commonplace now. You know, yeah. David Luiz will pull one out here and there at Arsenal. But I'd never, it was 2006. I'd never seen anything like it. It was extraordinary. And it was just one of those moments where Arsenal were absolutely flying. You know, they were probably about six or seven up by that point in the game. I think Thierry had a hat trick. And he was just producing party tricks. And it was... It was one of those moments, and he had a few like this, it was almost offensive to the opposition defenders that he dared to try it. But he had the skill to pull it off. And um, there were so many times like that where you just thought, wow, I've never seen anything quite like it, and I'm not sure I ever will again. Just thinking back to that season, uh, James, reminds mm. me of the... Do you remember the final North London derby at, uh, at Highbury that season? Yes, I, I do. was on the bench, and I think... It was to do with maybe resting for Champions League. I can't remember exactly the details, but he was very affronted to be on the bench for this yeah. game. And uh, Tottenham went ahead and he came on and scored the equaliser. And it was one of those where the celebration and the, indeed the manner of which he, that which he chased the goal um, was just so great because it was a, a fantastic example of when you, you look at a player and you know that they're feeling what you're feeling. And you know that he was like, we are not letting them win here in our last game at Highbury. It's not happening. And he just wouldn't let it happen. And that was kind of written all over his face. He was always quite emotional uh, on the pitch, I think, Thierry. And that was a great example of that. And just, I know I said I'd do two and I forgot to do the other one. So I'm quickly going to mention this because it's not Arsenal and I love it. And it might inspire someone to go away and watch something great. Um, there was a, a, a couple of filmmakers who made one of my favourite ever sports documentaries called Les Yeux Don Libre on the France World Cup team in 1998. They had a real um, uh, eye from within. It was incredible access. And when they're about to win the final, the, the, the guy with the camera is on the bench, basically, filming the guys in the squad who are not on the pitch as they're watching the last few minutes of France trying to win the World Cup against Brazil. And Thierry is in it a lot because he's so um, he's so emot emotive in his expressions and his gestures. And he's, he's so excited. And you really see the sort of boyishness in him. And then David Trezeguet starts to cry and he's, he's sobbing. And they're obviously quite close to winning and he's he, it gets him completely. And Thierry just wraps him in this bear hug. It's very touching. Um, I find I, like even I'm watching it and I, I well up. And then when the final whistle actually goes, in fact, when uh, Vieira and Petit, two Arsenal players, combine for the third goal, Thierry explodes like, like a pop champagne court. He jumps, leaps onto the pitch uh, in celebration. And it's just, if you feel like it and you, you want to dig it out, have a watch of, uh, of those fantastically evocative moments because it shows a more personal side of Thierry and how much he loves the game and how much it all means to him and I, I love that. Uh, Teo uh, has actually gone for the Blackburn goal. Um, I'm going to read you exactly what he wrote because it is, it, again, you're talking about evocative. Uh, Thierry to Sesk to Thierry and he just strokes it into the top corner and keeps running. No, jogging towards the fans with that look on his face. 11 out of 10 on the Thierry Insouciance Index. Well, the advanced player here, other than Henri, for Arsenal is Fabregas. And here he is. Back again to Thierry Henri. What a goal! The master does it again. That is magnificent. 
Um, I, you know, I've, well, I love that. That whole goal is brilliant, including Sesk's pass, which is just makes it look very easy. But yeah, lovely. I'm sure you've got your own memories and we appreciate you sending some of them to uh, to Teo's Twitter feed. By the way, you can subscribe to The Athletic UK right now for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That is 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hello, producer Tayo here. And I've got a message from the Athletics' David Ornstein, who wants to tell you about his latest Ask Ornstein video. This week's episode is all about Arsenal. Alongside me are James McNicholas and Art De Roche, and we discuss Daniel Ek's takeover interest, whether Stan Kroenke would consider selling, the summer transfer window, Mikel Arteta's job security, and of course, a reunion with Unai Emery in the Europa League. Head over to the Athletic UK YouTube channel now and give it a watch. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. By the way, thanks to Adrian Clark for stepping in last week. I know you talked quite a lot about the Super League uh, last week, uh, which was instantly rendered a little bit obsolete <laughs> by the fact that it died on the Tuesday. Um, as I said before, we were all at the protests. Um, Amy, it, I mean, uh, you looked you looked like I felt, I'll be honest with you. You looked so happy, uh, genuinely happy. I mean, I, I remember I was walking under the, um, the railway bridge towards the Emirates and I could hear singing. It was just around six o'clock. I could hear singing and it just transported me right back. So first things first, aside from the lack of social distancing, it was nice to be back at the Emirates with a crowd, wasn't it? It was. Um, it, it, I, I think you're right. I, th- I felt like I had a, you know, most sort of uh, jaw or cheek ache at the end of it from just sort of grinning for a good couple of hours. Um, but it was just a, a, a very uplifting feeling to be back in the crowd and for the crowd to be feeling something and showing what they felt. Uh, it was, I mean, it was a bit festival-like. I think there was quite a lot of people just down there for like a couple of beers in the crowd and, you know, seeing their mates and wanting to kind of reconnect with how it feels to be part of the football crowd again. Um, but obviously there was a lot of people there with, you know, very, very, very keen to make a serious point as much as they could about where the club is and uh, where it's come from and where it's heading. And if there's any kind of impact, it can be made by a little bit of collective action. Um, I worry that the owners are not too fussed about... I mean, I, that's probably a little bit unfair. Um, I, I don't think they'd be fussed enough to be engaging in the sort of 
conversations necessary for them to consider selling up. They made it pretty clear that they don't want to. But I still think it's important that the fans um, can really have one voice that is essentially saying this is not good enough, really, at the moment. Although I think they know that. Yeah, I mean, James, I, it's not going to make any difference, is it? I mean, the various things I've read, David Ornstein, I've seen David Ornstein on Sky yesterday saying there's no way the Cronkies are going to sell the club. There's a piece by um, Matt Slater, is it, that we might talk about a bit more uh, later about uh, what's happening and they, they don't seem to have any intention of, of, uh, of selling the club. But do you think it's more, maybe it's just a statement from us as fans saying... You know, we were singing, we want our Arsenal back. Well, I, I think that, that that ship has sailed to a certain extent, but we do feel that ownership that they will never really understand. No, and I think, to be honest, they probably never will understand. You know, there are aspects of what it is to be a football fan, the culture that exists around this sport that will always be slightly alien to them because they're coming from a very different sporting culture and a very different background. And... They're billionaires as well, and yeah. that makes a difference as well, doesn't it? It does. You've I mean, their this. experience is so different to our own. And actually, you know, I, I think it's... I don't think it's reasonable, really, to expect them to get it. They're never going to get it because they don't come from where we come from. They don't come from our perspective. But, you know, I think what fans want is a sense of admitting that and realising that they need to do more to try and, you know, have a share of vision with the fans for what the club's future might look like. In terms of if it's going to make any difference, I mean, it's so hard, you know, the protest was fantastic and it was kind of energising, if a little bit uh, unfamiliar to be in a crowd again, to be part of that atmosphere. But the whole time in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, what's this going to do? Where's this going to go? And and I don't say that's put a downer on it. I just say it because the Cronkies are pretty intransigent about this stuff. They're not easily moved. They've faced protests before in Denver and elsewhere, and it hasn't bothered them. You know, they no. they, they they kind of put their armour on and they get through it and they hope that it passes. And to be honest, most of the time it does. Um, so... It, It'll be fascinating to see. I don't think that those images, which were so striking and so powerful and so symbolic, will have made a jot of difference to Stan Kroenke uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. But what I do hope is that maybe... I think the most realistic hope, really, for fans is that the kind of talks the AST and other groups have been involved with, the Football Supports Federation, develop some sort of, uh, I don't know, some progress in terms of the governance of the game. I think that's the most the most plausible positive outcome here for Arsenal because I don't see the Cronkies selling, especially I don't find this the, the current bid that we're sort of seeing publicised from Daniel Ek um, and the associated uh, former Arsenal players. I just don't see that succeeding. I think no. the Cronkies are people who like to do business quietly and I think going public with it, while I understand it because you want to generate support and try and build a movement around it, I don't think that's going to work with these guys. All right, well, we'll get to Daniel Ek uh, in a second. Um, although I think all of us are in agreement that it's unlikely to happen, certainly for the money that he's asking. Um, but it's more about the unification of fans and fan culture, isn't it, Amy? I mean, I noticed there are a couple of people there in a Man United shirt and a Liverpool shirt, and we, we all sort of feel the same way. And 
I spoke to a friend of mine and I said, do you not think there should be some sort of legal thing that stops them? And he said he doesn't believe in too much interference. And I said, well, what happens if they start, if they try it again? And he said, well, we'll stop them again because this is our culture and they can't take our clubs and our culture away from us. I think the thing that I'd be really fascinated to understand, and I think it's probably something that would be important on whether there may or may not ever be any kind of shift um, from the Cronkies is this. So when the Super League thing fell apart, I guess there's two ways that uh, everybody involved kind of dealt with it. Either they all sort of went off to lick their wounds um, and genuinely were a bit shell-shocked and contrite and worried about what went down. Or they might have left each other with a little bit of a kind of like, come on, everyone, go and lie low and recover and we'll go again in another, yeah. whatever it is, year, 18 months, two years. And we have to amend the um, the, the programme and, and the thing that we put together and make some compromises so that it would be more acceptable. If the latter is, to hap is what happened, if there really is a sense that, OK, there'll be another version of this in future, that worries me because... I think that anything that gives the impression to the clubs involved that there's going to be some sort of big payday with maybe some guaranteed extra income, it might not be in the same guise of 23 years of you're in it forever as a founding member. They may find ways around that so it doesn't look quite the same, but it still might be something that is advantageous compared to what is currently the case in football. And if they think there's any sense of a bit more guaranteed income coming in for not really doing anything different, I can't see any way that the Cronkies would consider selling if there is that sort of pot of gold at the end of a rainbow that kind of turned into a storm but might come again. Yeah. I mean, James, I, um, Arsene Wenger's comments about the European Super League and basically saying the main point of it, as far as the owners of the Spanish and Italian clubs, was to hurt the Premier League. Do you share that viewpoint? Uh, I do think there's a degree to which maybe the Premier League doesn't realise quite what it's got to an extent. I mean, the clubs in Spain, say Barcelona and Madrid, they're the ones who desperately needed the Super League to happen because they exist in a domestic league which is unable to financially sustain them. Uh, and that's partly due to mismanagement on their part, but also just because the league itself doesn't have the international appeal. The Premier League does have that. And while I could see that there was that kind of greedy thought of, well, what if we combined all the best European teams together? There is a lot about the Premier League that is positive and that sustains these clubs financially. So I think one of the upshots of the Super League kind of falling apart might be that the Premier League grows stronger still. And that will probably meet with some resistance in Europe. I think there's a bit of resentment about that. But it will be very interesting to see if and when this idea comes back round again. I just refuse to believe we've seen the last of it. And your friend might well be right, but maybe fans can put a stop to it again. But I wonder how many times they'll try and wear our resistance to the idea down. The other thing to say is that there were aspects of it that I think made a certain degree of sense. I absolutely loathe the sort of lack of competitiveness and the fact that you were immune from relegation and things like that. But personally, I'm not opposed to things like a salary cap. And actually, if I look at the new UEFA Champions League format, 
that seems to me to be pretty clumsy too and not necessarily any better and there's also grounds within that for you to qualify without having actually qualified you can be invited to participate based on your coefficient rather than your league position yeah so this is an ongoing evolving conversation about the top level of European football and uh, I don't think it's finished yet and I think it would be wrong to think it is well, I don't think it. I don't think it ends with Europe, by the way, as well. I think their ultimate goal is Man United against Real Madrid in Beijing. To be honest, in front of maybe a hundred thousand flag waving fans who dropped a hundred quid each in the club shop, because that's where the money is, you know. But as I said earlier, that's our culture, and they can't have it. Um, we've talked a little bit, Amy, about Daniel Ek and Spotify. Do you hold out any hope that this might work out? Does it make any difference having Thierry Henry, Dennis Bergkamp, and Patrick Vieira along for the ride? To whom? The Cronkies? No. They're the only people who, 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 you know, anything really matters about. No, to the fans, maybe. To the fans, the fact that it maybe legitimises Daniel Ek and Spotify. You know, he says he says he was an Arsenal. I've always cheered for the Arsenal and all the rest of it. You go, OK, you take that with a pinch of salt. But if uh, Thierry, Dennis and Patrick are involved, you think this is a semi-serious bid here? Maybe, but let me ask you this. If a uh, different billionaire came with no connections to Arsenal, who nobody really knew much about, um, who promised to uh, plough loads of money in to, you know, help the club to get back to the sort of uh, status that it wishes to have, would you care if there wasn't ex-players involved? (laughs) I mean... All right, let me ask you this then. Would you take the Saudis over Stan Kroenke at this point? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't, I think there's a really interesting situation going on at the moment where a lot of people are um, finding it difficult to, to look in such a way. It's so much kind of anyone but the Kroenkes. Hmm. That's the situation at the moment in a lot of people's minds, it seems, you know, we just need a change. It needs to be something else. Is it, you know, your billionaire's better than our billionaire or this billionaire's better than that billionaire? We'd like um, a benign Which goes back to, we? well, yeah, but it goes back to James's point, which is what you really want is a different structure in English football, which will enable the um, quality of your billionaire question to be less significant. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. We'd rather but, not think about human rights abuses or, you know, <laughs> zero hours contracts or any of the other stuff that some of the other think, yeah. billionaire owners get up to. I think ultimately, though, um, whether it's Daniel Ek with other people or somebody else or him alone or however it works, it's really simple, which is that the amount of money that has to be put in front of the Cronkies for them to change their position has to be enormous. It probably would have to be well above sort of a fair market price yes. because they don't want to sell. So it has to be so rendered so attractive to them from a business point of view rather than from a public pressure point of view. That seems to me the only way that they might consider changing their mind. Now, whether Daniel Leck and or anybody else can get anywhere near sort of that level of silly money... I mean, and why would you? I mean, even if you love the club, if you're a billionaire businessman, you still want to make good business decisions. Why would you pay yeah. massively over the odds? It's it's difficult to see how it works. Um, yeah. And I think the inclusion of ex-Arsenal players potentially is great for PR. But it's obviously such an early part of 
uh, any bid being put together. I think it's quite a complicated and lengthy process normally to actually begin to put a proper bid that might work in place. So the idea that Daniel Ek tweets one day and a day or two later, suddenly there's a bunch of ex-players um, names being thrown around. You know, it's it's not ready. It's like what's really happening. They've gone. It's a bit like the Super League. They've they've maybe gone a bit early when the plan isn't been properly formulated because they yeah. think that it's the right time. Go now. You know. Well, I'm sure we'll talk more about this. Although I did tweet, and I noticed you ignore me. The fact that um, uh, if the Spotify founder does buy our club and we have every every song in the world to choose from, and we still go for Sweet Caroline, <laughs> I would enjoy that very much. <laughs> But that's just a personal thing because I know what I know. I can see your face. I'm right not responding now. to you now either. I know. I'm getting <laughs> that. Okay. Um, let's look forward to Thursday night uh, because because it was weird, wasn't it, when the Super League happened, James, and we and it all sort of made everything a little bit irrelevant. And then suddenly Tuesday it died, and suddenly we went, oh, actually Thursday has become a massive game again. Um, we're away to Villarreal, Unai Emery. Uh, how do we approach the first leg? I mean, I mean, do we go for an away goal? Do we? I, I haven't seen very much of Villarreal, so I don't know how they're playing. But this is a step up in opposition from what we've had so far in the Europa, right? Yeah, and a coach who's vastly experienced in this competition and relatively successful in it too, and knows um, our club, and knows our club, knows our players. And if there's one thing he's strong on, it's that kind of detailed preparation. I mean, they will have been absolutely focused on this fixture. It's as important to them really as it is to us um it's it's huge it's huge and it's interesting isn't it you know you're right we talk about the super league and i think one of the things i was really proud of arsenal fans because we kind of i sensed a sort of moral ethical objection to the idea that we should sort of get into the champions league if you will when it's sort of not on merit and i have to be honest if we win the europa league we will absolutely deserve to have won it, but it will feel like we're kind of in the Champions League despite very much not being one of the top four teams in England. So, listen, I would still be delighted to see it happen. As for how to approach the tie, I mean, Arsenal's home form this season isn't particularly good and we saw further evidence of that against Everton. You know, we don't create a lot of chances at home. We don't score enough goals. Actually, away from home, we've had some of our better performances. So I think this first leg... I think it's really crucial, consequently, and I think we need a good result. I would not like, given our home form and some of our recent performances at the Emirates Stadium, to take, you know, something very, very tight. You can easily see them scoring an away goal at the Emirates and, and making it really tricky. So, yeah, there's a lot of weight on this first game and a lot of pressure. You know, I I don't think Mikel Arteta is necessarily vulnerable in his position from the owner's side, but he's under enormous pressure from the support side. I think people are really starting to query where we're going. And if we do go out the Europa League, you know, it'll make for a pretty bleak end to the season. So he needs a result here. He does. And in that, with that in mind, Amy, does Bernd Leno start on Thursday? Uh, I would think so, yes. I would think so too, but I'm just putting it out there because... This is not the first mistake he's made. Now, part of the other mistakes mainly were about playing out from the back. And I understand keepers all mess up from Edison and Allison downwards. But do you think he's the commanding presence that we need? He doesn't seem like a top four goalkeeper right yeah, now. Yeah, but he's the Arsenal's number one goalkeeper. So he'll be playing on Thursday, I would have thought. It might, you know, it, it might be another conversation for another day further down the line. But facing a game of this significance, I'd be astonished if there was a change. James, I'm assuming you concur with that as well. 
I do, yeah. And and I said uh, on Ask Blog's podcast, I said, you know, personally, I don't know enough about Matt Ryan as a goalkeeper to sort of make that call and put him in instead. I've got to give a shout out to a guy called Jeff who sent me a message basically with Matt Ryan's exhaustive CV saying that I need to do my research. And he said he's got 59 international caps. He won the 2015 Asian Cup with Australia and the 2017 Confederations Cup, competed at the 2014 and 2018 World Cup, played Champions League football with Valencia, Europa League football with Club Bruges and Genk, including the quarterfinals. And he played AFC Champions League football with Centre Coast Mariners. So he clearly feels Matt Ryan's up to the job. Um, mm. I, I am sure it will be Leno. I really think Mikel Arteta will stick with him. There's a clear hierarchy at the moment in terms of who's number one, who's number two. And I think that's partly by design. I think Arteta likes it that way. I think Leno likes it that way. I agree, however, his form is a real concern. And one of the things, you know, if he was an outfield player, he'd probably be dropped. I do think that. But yes. with goalkeepers it seems to me that it's slightly different and they're, you know, maybe it's their capacity to recover from mistakes. Maybe it's the fact that mistakes go with the territory. It's kind of an occupational hazard of being a goalkeeper. That was a bad one though, wasn't it? Yeah, James? I think I mean, it was, was one Sunday of his worst league. moments, yeah, in an Arsenal shirt, possibly the worst. Can you imagine and if there were 60,000 people there? Not that there would have been 60,000 people there with the home form we've been having, but can you imagine the crowd? If he'd done that, it's embarrassment, isn't it? It, it's it is, yeah, and I think... What what's concerning to me is that Bern Leno's always been someone who he's made the odd mistake here and there, but he's recovered from them very well. And at the moment, he doesn't quite recover in the same capacity. He's in, he's on a bad run, and so I, I understand the debate. I understand the temptation to switch yeah. it up and put Matt Ryan in. Personally, I don't think Arteta will do it. I think he'll stand by his man. But what would you do, Ian? <laughs> Do you know what? I mean, uh, you get that was quite an impressive list you gave there of his achievements. Although, as yeah. Teo reminded me, he lo- he then lost his place at Brighton, which doesn't get mentioned True. Uh, quite as much. Um, he looks solid enough. I thought we dropped uh, Burnt Leno a few weeks ago, or was he just rested for that game the other week? I, you know what? I'd have kept Emmy personally, but that that ship has sailed. You can't but, play Emmy on Thursday. That's not the question, Ian. I'm, I know, but I, I'm avoiding the question, okay? I, but I'm saying to you, I don't know. I was just putting it out there. Guys, um, we've always got Alex Rinnison if we really we, want to. So. <laughs> we do always have Alex Rinnison. Isn't he uh, not in the squad? Or is he? Maybe we don't have Alex Runnison. Can I ask another question then, Amy? If you're Villarreal, (laughs) are you not attacking Granit Xhaka at left-back? I mean, we saw what happened with Everton and uh, Richarlison got him one-on-one and beat him. Beat him quite easily. And I'm sure that Unai Emery is watching that going, that's where we might get uh, a chance on the right, on on their right. Well, I'm still... Well, maybe, but I'm still... Curious as to whether Granite plays there or goes back into midfield and they try something else at left back because I I feel still like in a game of this significance you probably need to put your best midfield playing in the in the heartland. And that is Granite Xhaka with Thomas Partey, isn't it? Probably. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Although um, Partey's not exactly been playing um uh, the most uh ebullient football I've ever seen either at the moment. I mean, there just seems, does seem a few that are a bit uh, underconfident, let's say. Um, yes. And it needs everybody to really rally. I mean, I th- I think this is siege mentality time, big time. At the yeah, moment. but you texted me, Amy, the other day, because I mm-hmm. mentioned this to you, and you said the only two in the team who've got that siege mentality mentality <laughs> yeah. is Kieran Tierney, who's injured at the moment, and Granite Xhaka. And that yeah. siege 
Your mentality from Granite Xhaka is really because of, you know, tearing the armband off and, and you know, closing ranks with himself, if you like. It's not, it's not enough. We don't have enough of it in the team, do we, James? Well, we might be about to find out. Perhaps not. I mean, <laughs> clearly, Tierney's a big miss. And I do think something that's maybe a bit absent from the analysis of Arsenal's most recent performances is how many big players we've been without. I mean, in the Everton game, you could talk about Kieran Tierney, you could talk about David Luiz, Alexandre Lacazette, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Martin Odegaard wasn't fit to start. No. These are really important players. You know, yeah. players who have been integral to pretty much everything we've done that's been good this season. So... Uh, you know, and we'll be without some of those for the Villarreal game. Erdegaard will be back, won't he? Erdegaard will, yeah. Aubameyang will. Aubameyang, I think, I think. will. Uh, Louise, I think, could be back if uh, that's what Arteta wishes to to do. So, I, I mean, I think that he can definitely call on a, a bit more experience if he needs to. That would be helpful, would it not? Thomas Partey, we mentioned Thomas Partey before. I mean, I don't know if I talked to you about this, James. I've got a theory that he's going to get nearer and nearer with his shooting and then plant one in the top corner to win the Europa League final in the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that I'll take that deal if that's what you're So would I. <laughs> it, it is it is an interesting aspect of his game. We've talked about it before. I mean, I have to believe, you know, he's got permission to do it from Mikel Arteta. Arteta's so, you know, definitive about what he wants from his players that I can't imagine that Partey's just going rogue taking all these shots. But it's not working for him. He has got it in his locker. We've seen no. it at Atletico. We've seen it at Ghana. But nowhere near in an Arsenal shirt for the time being. And as sort of forwards, I mean, we're saying that people will be fit. Do we have a preferred forward line at the moment, Amy? Um... I don't know. It's not I, easy, I, I, know. I mean, it, it's hard no. to say because obviously people are coming back. We just don't know the physical shape of everybody really at the minute. So, If everyone's fit. Um, I'd, I, would, I, I find it really strange to imagine going into a game like this without a Bamiyang if he's fully fit for all the yeah. issues that he's had before. When you think about what he produced pretty much individually um, in terms of being the difference maker for the semi-finals and finals against top teams last year in the FA Cup. How could you not? Yeah. How could you not? We're uh, in this competition be because of him, aren't we? Yeah. I'd be inclined to include Lacazette because I think he, you know, he brings a lot to the team and he, he's been important lately. Um, obviously, Saka has to play and then Smithrow and Odegaard. I don't know if there's a way of fitting everyone in or whether somebody's got to come off the bench potentially, but... Um, I'd like to think they've all got a part to play over the over the two yeah. legs for sure. I think going to need squad goals. Game, it? But well, yeah. I mean, I'm 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 totally neurotic about second legs at home in uh, in the away goal world. Uh, it feels to me, and I meant to do a bit of homework and forgot. So sorry about that. But it feels like our track record with home legs in European football knockout games is quite littered with catastrophe um and i always feel there's such a tangible nervousness you can feel that they play differently with a second leg at home uh most of the time and it's supposed to be a home advantage but i think a lot of the time it's a, a home disadvantage because if you're under pressure it feels like extra pressure um and if something goes wrong it feels even more kind of uh of a terrible omen or I just think it's 
from it's you've got to be on top in your second leg at home if you want to be um relaxed about it which just doesn't feel very awesome <laughs> you're, you're at the moment let's be honest you're essentially asking for a win in the away leg it sounds like to me but you know a what? big win that to be, be honest i'd like a big win <laughs> I, I'm not, I hope i'm not asking for much under, under a big win away in the first but yeah leg. that would be ideal <laughs> it, it would james in terms of the forwards um i mean i think amy's pretty much you know lacazette Obama Yang, Saka, our most effective player, and either Odegaard or Smith Rowe, probably Odegaard to start. Yeah, I don't know if we'll have Lacazette for this one. Maybe I'm out of the loop, but it feels like a big ask for him to get back for that hamstring problem. But I think Obama Yang is the one. You know, he obviously has been ill, he's had malaria. Um, I feel like he probably could have been included at the weekend, but. I think they've decided to give him as much time as possible to get ready for this game because I think he's going to be instrumental to what we do. Um, I would probably edge towards including Martin Odegaard if he's fit. I just think in the performances where we've had him in the starting eleven, we've been a bit more fluid and fluent. And I think he's a very technically accomplished player. We might need a bit out of that out there in Spain. But then it's tricky, you know, Saka, sure, you're going to pick him on the right-hand side. On the left... It's probably between Smith Rowe and Pepe. It's a it's a toss up really because they're quite different players. It depends what exactly you want to ask of them. But um, I, I think Amy makes a good point about this being 180 minutes of a tie, and there will be opportunity for all these players in that period. And I, re I remember the first leg in the last round. You know, we saw the likes of Aubameyang and Pepe come off the bench and have a, a huge impact. We then conceded a rather foolish equaliser. But I, I think that players can really change these games, change the course of the ties from the bench. So Arteta will surely be bearing that in mind when he selects his, uh, his match day squad. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. It's handbrake off here, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Me, Ian Stone, here with Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas in, as I said, a very, very big week for the club. One bit of good news that did come out. There's a piece in The Athletic about uh, following Balogun signing a new four-year contract with Arsenal. Um, James, there was a lot of talk that he might leave um, a few months ago because he wasn't getting game time, but obviously he's been talked round. Yeah, and I think it's really good news. I mean, this is a really exciting prospect. Um, you don't want to overhype a, a young player, but in terms of his what he's done in the academy, his goal-scoring record, the performances he's produced, there's been as much excitement about Balogun as there has been really as about anybody else, you know, including the guys who are pulling up trees in the first team for us at the moment. So... It's impossible not to get excited about a player this gifted. And I think to lose him would have been a real blow. Uh, whatever compensation we would have received would have been insufficient. And I think now he's got an opportunity because the striking situation at Arsenal's not really that clear at the present time. I mean, Alexandre Lacazette and Eddie Nketiah will both have one year remaining on their contract come the summer. You'd think there might be decisions on certainly one or, or perhaps both of those players. Um, and that could create 
a pathway for him and and that will have been the conversation you know of course there's a big financial component here and that's been part of these talks but also trying to decipher what is the way forward for Balogun what is the route he's going to take to the first team is it that he's going to get opportunities with the squad next year is he going to go out on loan I'm interested to see what they've devised between them you know and there will have been conversations with Edu as technical director with Per Mertesacker from the academy with Mikel Arteta involved as well to figure out what is the, the appropriate path to give this player the best chance of his fulfilling his potential because he's got bags and bags of ability. And Amy, in terms of Balogun and game time next year, I mean, if we do qualify for the Champions League, that would suggest he'd get less game time because the games are going to be harder in a group stage. Maybe, uh, although, I mean, with the new extended formula um, oh, and the seedings, games, yeah. it's, there's, there is actually more games and potentially you know, not all of them are going to be against top teams. So arguably there might be some more game time. Um, plus, I think you're looking at obviously whatever cup competitions uh, are available. I think it would be nice if you can stick around. And, and certainly that there's always that thing where you can play... The first half of the season at Arsenal, um, where there's probably more rotation with more competitions going on and, you know, then look at a January move if needed in the same way that obviously someone like Joe Willock uh, has now gone off to Newcastle and it's interesting to see him scoring a lot of goals. I'm curious to see what that does to any thinking about his future, for example. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, What a rare thing. Uh, (laughs) But yeah. on, on Balogun, I think echoing James's point, just overall so pleased that he stayed. Um, and there is this feeling of Hale and FC and that would be a real uh, shame if, if one of the bright prospects to come through actually leaves more or less before they play or get much chance. So it was really important from that status point of view to keep that uh, pattern going. It does. I just don't know what they will look at and see. Do you keep him in learning like Saka and getting, getting, giving him those opportunities to, to make his chances, um, or is he going to be given that loan opportunity? And I hope they make a choice that ensures he gets great development and loads of football. I'm also interested to see how you've got Martinelli as well. Um, presumably, if he stays, there's going to be a bit of competition there amongst those guys for game time as well, which could be interesting. And Eddie and Ketia as well, by the way. And he's going to, he possibly will miss out. He didn't look particularly good against Everton, but no one did. Um, it's nice to have young striking options, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think Eddie's the one who's most under threat, um, simply because you've got Martinelli and Balogun, who are younger guys, more recently signed to new contracts. You know, I wonder... I know Mikel Arteta really admires Eddie Nketiah as a player and spoken about that many times, but you do almost wonder if him playing in that fixture was, while in part a reward for getting the equaliser the previous week, also an opportunity to put himself in the shop window. Um, You know, Arsenal are are fortunate and they have a number of talented young English players who might well be available for transfer this summer. You think of Nketiah, Rhys Nelson can't really get a game at the moment. Who knows what will happen with Joe Willock? And at a time when the club is in a very difficult financial situation, that may be the most obvious route to raising funds for the transfer market. Yeah, there's no doubt there's a bit more excitement from um, uh, from Martinelli and Balogun. But, um, uh, you know, strange things can happen. We'll see. The other uh, interesting, uh, well, an interesting piece you wrote, James, uh, about Dial Square. And this obviously came out with came up 
because of the Super League and clubs wanting to reconnect with their fans and going back to their roots. Um, and uh, this is, um, well, explain what, what, what the connection is with Dole Square. Yeah, I mean, we reported about a year ago, I think it was January last year, that this club was intended to be set up as a kind of Phoenix club for Arsenal. Um, you know, at the time, the idea was met with quite a lot of uh, resistance and I think a fair amount of humour because uh, Dale Square were due to play their games in Surrey, which I don't think sat quite right with anybody. Ultimately, they were going to plan to move to the club's original location in Woolwich rather than Islington again. That wasn't something that modern fans of Arsenal really identified with. But obviously, in the light of the Super League decision, you know they've received a lot of applications for membership. I think a lot of people's relationship with Arsenal feels broken or damaged or compromised in some way. Uh, and they've been one of the beneficiaries. I think one of the interesting things that I found is, you know, I wrote the piece talking about them, you know, as a, an alternative for Arsenal fans who kind of feel like they don't wish to put any money in Stan Kroenke's pocket or they no longer feel connected to the club. And I actually had quite a lot of feedback from different people saying, well, I'm a member of Dial Square FC, but I am also still an Arsenal fan. And for me, it's a compliment to my football supporter experience. You know, it, they're, they're so different at such different ends of kind of the spectrum of what football can be that in somehow, in some ways, they're able to kind of hold the two clubs together and it sort of forms like a complementary experience. I thought that was interesting because obviously there are aspects of football which supporting a Premier League club in the modern era leaves you feeling quite detached from and maybe you do get a bit more of that down in the non-leagues. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I went, I did a gig actually in the um, uh, in the pub where the original changing rooms are. I was shown by the owner the, the coat hooks and some of the little bits, uh, the Arsenal connected bits and it and it does connect you with the roots but maybe James is right Amy the younger fans they care less about that stuff um oh well, were we in a legacy fans younger fans debate here well I, you know what <laughs> well, I'm not sure we've got the time but I just yeah. I'm just putting it out there a bit reluctant to try and say what younger fans think um being an old fogey um <laughs> yes Nice. I would say that I uh, was with my kids and a bunch of their friends when the Super League thing was going on and actually the morning after it was announced, they were all chatting about it and debating and they all support Super League, a variety of Super League clubs and they were debating uh, which club that they should, you know, follow if uh, if the Super League happens because it was obviously, yeah, they, could, they could sense that it was the wrong thing to do to to stay with your club if they joined the Super League and killed football. Um, but most of them seem to be thinking about alternative Premier League clubs rather than lower down divisions or non-league, which I thought was interesting. But maybe that's just a reflection of sort of FIFA generation and stuff. I don't know. Very possible. Um, uh, the random Arsenal player this week is one and only Mr Paul Merson. Um, <laughs> Amy, I'm sure you'll have a bit to say. Give us a memory of Paul Merson. God, I love Merce. I know Honestly, you do. Uh, I know you do. what a player. I mean, for... I think people, now I'm going to talk about the younger generations. People who didn't see that much of him play, um, bad luck. But he was really, really super talented and a maverick. I loved it when he grew his hair in 89. There was a rumour that he was um, not going to get it cut until we won the league, which was quite lucky, really, uh, how that worked out. But he, he had this mop of sort of really sort of shaggy hair and just played with phenomenal technique. I think Alan Smith said about him that he, you know, he played with Lineker and 
uh, Ian Wright and with some of the iconic strikers of the generation as partners, but said that for him, Merson was the best. Yeah. Lovely footballer, James. Yeah, I mean, actually, to be honest, in terms of my year of watching the game, I, I remember more of Paul Merson elsewhere than at Arsenal, but I do have a very clear memory of him leaving Arsenal and being really shocked, actually. I was surprised at the time because he played fairly regularly under Arsene Wenger in his first season and then was sold pretty unceremoniously to Middlesbrough for about four and a half million pounds. And he was a player I had loved watching at Arsenal and what I'd seen of him, as Amy said, brilliant technique, brilliant skill. Um, but it was kind of a, how can I put it? It felt like a bit of a end of an era moment in some ways. Like it was yes. a clear kind of changing of the guard for him to be moved on like that. Um, I can't remember the full story. I think I remember reading that he was offered a contract by Arsenal, but it was not as long as he would like or not the terms he would have liked. Wasn't so. the point, I, I, wasn't I the think... point, Amy, that, uh, that Dennis Bergkamp was in that position and he sort of, and they said, Arsene Wenger said to him, I've got to play Dennis. And even Paul Merson understood. I don't know. I mean, maybe. Um, but I mean, he was such a good player. Mercy could have played anywhere along the front, really. Um, but I, th I think ultimately that bizarrely, when you think about those times and how successful Arsenal were, I think Middlesbrough offered him more money and a better deal at that time. Yeah. yeah. This was kind of, you know, just post sort of Ravinelli and Emerson and all that. And they did have a lot of money and they had a few big stars down there. He yeah. played with um, Gascoigne at Middlesbrough. Yeah, yeah. And he played I think some they, I think they, I think they hung out together quite a bit with Jimmy Fivebellies <laughs> and Merson's brother. Wow. And I think it was that got messy, a bit of a scene, let's just say. That was probably a bit different to kind of the Arsene Wenger 1990s London Colney atmosphere, I would imagine. But uh, yeah, look, fantastic player and uh, a big Arsenal man as well, isn't he? I mean, he's really, I think he might have grown up as a Chelsea supporter, but God, Arsenal is really in his heart now. I remember a game at Liverpool away when we broke away and he scored mm. past Grobola and it was a side foot goal and it, and it just it, it, that's exactly what it was. He had that impudence, didn't he? And and I remember just watching that and jumping up and down and thinking what a, what a supreme talent he was. That that really is my main memory of Merce, really. Amy, what about you? Any more? Uh, I would say that another thing about him is he's a he's a very um, he's a very very funny guy he's got a fantastic sense of humor and he's also a very emotional guy I feel like with Paul he says anything straight away exactly what comes into his head mm. without really filtering or that's why he's good telling <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but he that's how that's that's him that's how he is I think in life generally um and and, and a kind of counterpart to that sort of very you know quite chirpy uh side of him is is you know he's had his struggles and i don't know if anybody saw the um the program with harry redknapp not that, not that long ago where yeah, got a bunch of players together yes and he's really um i i, I found it very moving to watch he's a, a you know the way the openness and the way he tried to deal with that but that just a side note a side of him as well to go alongside that side of him um when we talked to when we were doing the 89 film he mentioned that he'd been, he was a young player of a year in 1989. And uh, it was the awards dinner, I think, on the day of the Hillsborough disaster um, or the day after, I think maybe on the Sunday was the PFA dinner. And he just said he just won the biggest award that 
a kid could wish to, mm. you know, to win coming through in football and he didn't want to go. He just, that's right. He couldn't face it. Um, you know, and I, and I, the emotional honesty that he has is, is, is something, is a big part of him and it's something that I love about him as well as his football ability. It was a very moving part of that film watching him say that and and uh, I felt that as well um uh, Tayo by the way has said he won us an FA Cup replay against Leeds an evening game loved it yes he did yes he did uh we were glad to have him uh let's have a song before we go James I'm going to come to you first uh well on the theme of protests I went for Bob Marley get up stand up get up stand up don't give up the fight Lovely. I'm having Under Pressure, by the way. You mentioned Pressure earlier. Great song. Yes, uh, by Queen and, um, and David Bowie as well. And um, because it is a pressurised time. But you know what? It's nice to be part of something at the end of the season. Because uh, that lot from the other side of North London have got nothing left, have they really? So that's quite funny. Uh, what about you, Amy? Um, a song came into my head during recording of this podcast. It wasn't what I was originally going to choose. Um but I'm going to go with I Believe in Miracles. And I'm not really bothered whether it's the hot chocolate version or the version by Cud, 1980s uh, uh, indie band from Leeds. Cud. Rich and Strange. Didn't oh, they I loved Cud. It's a great Brilliant. tune. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's go for the Cud version then. Probably the lesser known I Believe in Miracles. But I feel like That's a good I tune. Believe in Miracles sums up like, you know, Arsenal fans, so whether they're getting carried away with... Eck and the Invincibles or you know whether they're going to protest they, they, they want something to believe in and it does need to be a bloody miracle um, and uh, you know this this Villarreal semi-final I think you know where we've been what's been going on it's been very very crazy times and we probably need a bit of a miracle to win this trophy as well but let's That's do it. it no let's do it you're right let's do it let's let's summon the spirit of the um uh, however many protests there were outside um, outside the Emirates official attendance 59,814 but it might not have been that many um, that certainly it, wasn't a thousand which was it what wasn't, some, some people seem to be suggesting it certainly officially. wasn't a thousand <laughs> it, no it wasn't we know that was my arse um, uh, what a lovely way to end <laughs> thank you Amy Lawrence James McNicholas thanks to Teo uh, I'm Ian Stone thanks for listening to Handbrake Off the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic The Athletic.